Robert to uh, have to be together with you. Um, we're in a series that we started last week that we called Regifting. And this is looking more and more like a Christmas series. We started with a sweater last week, and now we've got a Christmas tree, we've got the poinsettia, we've got the um, star on the wall, so we're, we're really getting into the spirit. Um, I can't believe that it's already December. You can hear me now. Hello. <clears throat> I can't believe it's already December now. Um, and not only is it December, but we're only like two weeks away from the 25th. Like, does it seem like this year accelerated like really, really quickly? Uh, maybe it's just me. Okay, so we're in this series that we're called Regifting. And we're looking at a concept uh, called Regifting. If you're not familiar with this, the idea is if you receive a gift that you don't necessarily want, you don't really like, it doesn't really fit your style or whatever, you kind of wrap it back up and then just hand it off to somebody else that you don't have a gift for, right? So regifting gets kind of a bad rap, which is honestly my favorite joke about this whole series, but nobody has laughed either time that I've said it, so I'll stop saying it. but I think it's partly, we, we talked last week, it's partly because of two reasons. One is our perception problem, and one of them is a relationship problem. Because doesn't regifting indicate something about the relationship between the giver and the receiver? In the first instance, the person who was giving the gift obviously didn't know you well enough to pick a gift that you would like or that would fit with your style or something that, that you would appreciate. And so there's maybe not as strong a relationship as the giver would like, uh, to propo- pers- would like to suppose. But again, the relationship between you, the re-gifter, and the person who's receiving it is, is probably a little bit strained too because you realize, oh, I don't have anything for this person. I should give them something, I guess, and I've got this thing that I didn't want from this other person, so I can just give it to them. So it highlights a problem in the relationship. Um, in both of the relationships. But the other thing that we really keyed in on a lot um, last week was our, our perception. We talked about how everything in the world, everything that exists, is given to us by God. Um, and so if you, if you haven't uh, listened to that message, I encourage you to catch up on the YouTube page. Uh, it's not on the, on the podcast yet. I'm way behind on that. I, I apologize. Um, but you can catch up on the YouTube page. Barry keeps that all up to date. He does great work. Um, but everything is a gift from God. We saw in James chapter 1, verse 7, that every good gift is a blessing from heaven above. And so if we've received everything that we have, air, you know, houses, cars to drive, roads to drive on, all, if we've received all of these things as gifts, then why would we try to act like anything that we had in the world wasn't already a gift from God? And if everything we have is a gift from God, then anything we could possibly give is a re-gift. And so we talked about how last week, um, the only hope that we have to fill our eternal longing is, is Jesus' generosity, that he would come and give himself as a gift and share himself as a gift. So this morning, we're going to look together in, uh, in a book called Matthew. Um, and if you want to use these blue Bibles, they're kind of tucked under the chairs um, in front of you or on the chairs beside you. We're going to be on page 1007, so 1007. 1007 in these blue Bibles here. It's going to be Matthew chapter 1 for uh, if you want to navigate there by some other means. But we're going to be looking at the beginning of uh, what we would typically call the Christmas story. I see you guys are, are turning there, you're navigating, everybody's kind of getting there. Um, I just invite you as we begin uh, to explore some of these ideas. Um, I often need God's help, 
often being always, uh, in understanding his word. And so I just invite you to pray with me. It's our habit here together at Neighborhood Church to, to pray the disciples' prayer. And this isn't a magic incantation. It's not a spell or anything like that. But this is the model of prayer that Jesus left for us. And it's going to inform um, our heart in how to approach God. So I just invite you to pray with me. You can pray out loud if you're comfortable and you would like to. Um, the words are on the screen if you want to follow along. I use a little bit of a different translation than probably traditional um, disciples' prayer goes. But anyway, all that to say, would you bow your hearts with me and let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Matthew chapter 1 and... I'm going to begin in verse 18. So we're going to begin kind of in the middle of the chapter, but I'll go back and pick up the first part, and you'll see why when we get there. Matthew chapter 1, I'm just going to read these first two verses, 18 and 19. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So I'm going to pause there because, believe it or not, we actually have a lot to unpack in just those two verses. Um, Typically, uh, because we're Americans, because we're in like this, this culturally Christian environment, we have an idea of what Christmas is about. Um, and, and many of us will see bumper stickers that say keep Christ in Christmas and probably like our, our version of what Christmas looks like is a lot like this. Um, plastic, uh, light up, um, it's, it's a little bit sanitized, right? Because if anybody's ever been in a labor and delivery room, you know that like there aren't these, these quiet smiles um, and this gazing, there's a lot more crying and screaming and blood and gore and all of those things. So this is like our picture of Christmas and yet our picture is, is a little bit sanitized. Um, and, and so I want to take it out of the plastic globe era and bring it into real life a little bit for you and ask you to consider exactly what's going on here. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So you've got a young couple that are betrothed, and before they actually get married, the, the woman is found to be pregnant. Now, I'm, I'm going to ask you to take yourself out of the Bible word for, world for a minute because we're like, oh, yeah, of course, this happens every year. We do this every December. The, the girl gets pregnant before. But, like, like if, you hadn't, if you didn't know this story, if you'd never heard this story before, you weren't really anticipating this kind of thing, what would that sound like to you, that the girl got pregnant before they were married? We can say it. She stepped out. Infidelity, right? There's, there's something suspicious that's going on here. And the guy is like, okay, um, I'm, and her husband, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. You're like, divorce? They weren't even married yet. So that should be your first clue that maybe there are dynamics here that, we, that, we're, that are under the surface that we need to unpack 
He's divorcing somebody he's betrothed to. When we read betrothed, we probably are thinking engaged. We think there's an engagement process. And when we think of engagement, the picture that comes to our mind is like a guy down on one knee with a ring to a girl that he's been dating for a long time or something like that. Like That's our picture of what engagement is. However, the betrothal process actually had very little to do with like romance. <laughs> Or, uh, or necessarily a relationship between the two people that were being married. Oftentimes, it was a, a business agreement between two families coordinated by the parents. And a betrothal meant that we're going to put these two together, they're going to get married, and there's, there's at least a down payment at the beginning of this process. So whether or not the whole dowry gets paid in full isn't, isn't clear, but like there is some kind of exchange of like my family's going to give you this many goats or help, whatever it is. And there's a down payment at the beginning of the betrothal process. It's not just a relationship between the two. It's a relationship between the families. And I tell you that to try to import some weight into what it is that we're looking at. It's not just like, oh, you hurt my feelings or, oh, you cheated on me. It's oh, like, mom and dad are really ticked about this. I have to make a decision about what it is that I'm going to do here. Now, I'm going to bring some more data into it. Mary probably was a lot younger than we would consider to be marriageable age. Um, she was probably, like, max, or not, not max, excuse me. She was probably minimum around 13 years old, 13, 14. She was a young girl. Joseph probably was between 18 and 25. He was older, but he's still a kid. Who, who, who is really, really comfortable like trusting a 19-year-old like driving a car by themselves? A 19-year-old dude, right? Like there's still, there's still some things that need to be worked out in the maturity process and the maturity thought process of, of, of a young man, right? And so we're putting him into this situation. Uh, the family is a lot more engaged. They're a lot more involved in this relationship. They're invested in this relationship. And so they have stakes. And when Mary comes up to be pregnant, what, what does she have to demonstrate that there was no infidelity here? There was, there was nothing uh, um, uh, inappropriate that was going on. It's, it's just her word. Now, this isn't the way that it ought to be, but the way that it was is that in a, in, a, in a legal case, unless there were two witnesses and two male witnesses, there was no legal standing. There was no witnesses. So all she has is her word, which doesn't have legal standing. And Joseph, this young kid, has to figure out, what do I do? My betrothed is pregnant, and I know it wasn't me. In fact, um, many in his time saw infidelity as a, as, or saw divorce as a requirement for infidelity. So we actually will see later on in, in Matthew's biography of Jesus' life, these, these um, religious teachers come to Jesus and ask a question like, is it lawful for a man to get a divorce for any reason? And he says, well, uh, no, it's not. And they say, well, then why does Moses command us to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. He says, you, you've completely misunderstood the law. So Jesus is giving a corrective that like divorce shouldn't work that way, but the understanding in the religious people of the day was that if there was infidelity in the relationship, that the man was required to divorce his wife. 
Jesus' teaching on that is, is different, but that's the worldview, or that's the, the thing that's going on in the background of Joseph. Those, that's the advice he's getting. There's something wrong here. You need to divorce her and put her away. But the text describes him as a just man. He didn't want to put her to shame. He didn't want to put her to open shame. He was going to divorce her quietly. He's just going to end the arrangement. I don't know if they had to give the down payment back or what, they, what the thing was, but he's like, I don't, want to, I don't want them to stone her out in the streets. I don't want them to throw rocks at her and kill her. But like, I'm going to remove myself from this arrangement, and, and we can just go our separate ways, no harm, no foul, as best as he can. And that was actually a really generous offer for him. Like, he's, he's a young dude. He's got some rights. He's got some dreams that he's looking forward to. He's been working hard to build a household, to establish himself. Um, and now he's got this bride that he's betrothed to. Like, his life is getting ready to get on. And now there's this, this, this um, uh, not just a pothole, but like a huge pothole. Like, losing his car in the road type pothole in his life and his plans and the direction that he was going. But he says, okay, I'm just, okay, I'll just take a step back. You go your way, I'll go my way, and we'll, we'll, we'll just forget this ever happened. There is a small principle that I think we're really quick to overlook. Our character is not the same thing as our reputation. Our character is not the same thing as our reputation. Our reputation is the way that everybody else in the world sees us. The stories that people tell about us when we're not in the room, that's our reputation. But our character is what we choose to do when we're in the room by ourselves, and no one will find out. Our character and our reputation are not the same thing. And here we see that Joseph had character. He said, I know people are going to talk, but I'm a just man, and, and I'm, I'm going to do what I think is, is the right thing to do here. I'm going to do what is best. I'm going to try to preserve Mary as best I can. I'm going to try to take care of her even though I'm not going to be wedded to her. But I've got upstanding character even when it costs my reputation a little bit. Like I can remove myself from this because, well, we'll get into that the next step. Um, are we, you and I, Neighborhood Church, are we more concerned about our reputation or are we more concerned about our character? But it depends on the day, maybe. Are we more concerned about what everybody thinks about who we are, or are we more concerned about who we actually are? Because I actually, like, I know people who will bend over backwards to make sure that people think the right thing about them instead of making the life changes to make them the kind of person that people would think the way they want them to think. Is that, I, that was a lot of words. People, I'm sorry. People will spend so much time and energy to, to try and make you perceive they are one thing instead of putting their time and energy into becoming the person that would actually be that thing. They're more concerned about having a great reputation than they could. Like you, could you could take that same energy and put it into your character. And God sees our character. He knows our reputation, but he sees our character. He knows who we are when we're alone and the decisions that we make when we think we won't get caught. There's no need for us to keep a, a facade with God. He doesn't care or he's not fooled by our PR campaign, our public relations campaign, whether those be on social media 
or whether those be what we do at the family meals when we're at Thanksgiving or at Christmas meals. Like, he's not fooled by our PR campaign. He sees through to our character. And why, why, does, that, why does that matter? I, I missed a picture, but we'll go on. Our big idea for this morning is that God shows his generous character by making himself of no reputation. God shows his generous character by making himself of no reputation. So we've got this dilemma. Mary and Joseph are betrothed. Their families are upset. Joseph is like, okay, I'm going I'm to divorce this girl quietly, and I'm just going to move on with my life. But that's not the end of the story. We know this, but that's not the end. Let's look together in Matthew chapter 1 and in, in verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means... God with us. So we'll pause there. Um, good news, church down the road, they are doing a Christmas series too called Planned or Unplanned <laughs> um, or, or something like that. And so it's really interesting. I'm good friends with Mario. But like he's making the point of like this was an unplanned pregnancy as far as Joseph and Mary were concerned. Like Mary didn't wake up one morning like, all right, I want to carry the son of God in my womb. That, that was probably not even on her radar. Uh, Joseph, for sure, was like, yeah, I'd like to get her pregnant one day, <laughs> but I have to do this in the right order. Because he's, well, we know he's, you know, a young guy. Like, anyway, I won't fill in all the gaps for you. I'm going to trust you to fill them in. It wasn't a planned pregnancy from their standpoint, but from God's standpoint, this absolutely was part of the plan. And so the book of Matthew opens up in probably the most boring way possible for Americans, because we, like, we don't care at all about this. If you look in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, the way that this book, this story, this biography of Jesus opens is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Oh, great, a genealogy. Like, genealogy are like, if you start a, a Bible reading plan, I want to read through the Bible in, the whole, in, the, in a whole year. Like, when you get to those first couple genealogies in Genesis, you're like, I'm not sure I can do this. Like, this, this is a lot of names, and I can't pronounce most of them, and they don't mean anything to me. Like, I, mm, maybe this Bible reading thing isn't my bag. So that's how Matthew starts. That's how the biography about Jesus starts. And he goes through and starts to list. It really is as boring as it sounds. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez by Zerah, by, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the son of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And it goes on and on and on and on. And I would invite you to read it because there are some really interesting things in there when we look back at these people's stories. Abraham has a story. What God did with Abraham's life uh, is, is really fascinating. Judah had a story, and he's probably one of my favorite characters to see life change in. Judah was a guy who, who, who was super-duper selfish, and by the end of his life, he got it. But the way that God got his attention is, is incredible, and it actually has a lot to do with Tamar. And if you don't know that story, um, that's a fun one. Um, yeah. All of this 
goes to, to make one point. It says, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of, say that, David, the son of Abraham. So, and if you skip down to uh, verse 6, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. So David is the only one who's called a king in this whole story, except that the next 14 names after David, all are kings too. And then at the end, all the generations from Abraham to, in verse 17, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So Matthew's trying to articulate there was a plan here. That number 14, um, he's probably trying to relate it to the letters in David's name, which is kind of a weird thing. Um, it doesn't make a lot of sense to how we would want to write a genealogy. If we were going to make a family tree, we'd probably want most people on the tree. Um, and we might cut a couple branches off here or there, depending on our relationship with them. But if we were going to make a family tree, we probably would want to include most people. Uh, Matthew apparently didn't seem to need to do that. He wanted it to relate. He wanted everything in this to point to David, David being the king. There are other kings on the list, but David is the king. And all of that to say <laughs> that Jesus is a king after David, he has a legal claim to the throne. Because you look at that list and you go, okay, da 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 da, da. Um, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, who's Jesus' uh, adopted dad here, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. That's the end of the chain. Begot, begot, begat, if you're reading the, uh, if you're reading the King James, begat, 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 begat. Um, here we have the father of, the father of, the father of, and then you get to Joseph, and it's Joseph, the husband of Mary. So it wasn't Jesus' dad. He's the husband of Mary, Jesus' mom. Because we've already seen that he wasn't involved in the pregnancy. All that to say. It was an unplanned pregnancy from their standpoint, but God had it written out. And he knew what he was doing. And he had it laid out for generations. We did a, a Christmas series a number of years ago called The Waiting Game. And I literally added up all of the years that we took from the promise in the garden that, that humanity was going to be delivered and redeemed all the way to the time where Jesus actually showed up. We're just longing and waiting years and years and decades and decades and centuries and centuries, waiting, waiting, waiting. But it all was part of God's plan. Um, I'll just make a quick note. If, notice there's four women in the genealogy. If you go back and read it, you've got uh, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and a, a little lady called the wife of Uriah. David had Solomon by the wife of Uriah, which means he had Solomon by somebody else's wife. Jesus' genealogy, his family tree isn't, isn't clean An angel shows up to Joseph and says, don't be afraid to marry her. The Holy Spirit is at work. Something is going on in the background that you're not really going to understand. The Holy Spirit has done this. So Joseph might not have a legal witness, but he has an angelic witness. We just got out of the book of Daniel, and sometimes when an angel shows up, like, you get it real quick. Do not fear to marry her. You're not, your character is not being violated here. It's going to cost you your reputation, but you can still be an upstanding guy. You can still have good character by marrying this girl. Who are we concerned to please with our life? 
when we look at the manger and we see the, um, my button's not working. Can you click the next one, Cam? Um, when we look at the manger and we see the crown set, we say, okay, this guy's supposed to be the king. And we look then at the situation that's going on. We say, like, okay, there's, there's something off here. Like, he's got the, the, the uh, legal right to inherit the throne of King David. And yet, this situation is kind of icky. Like, we know the details. We get the backstory. But that's not what's going to be published in, in the newspapers. That's not what's going to be the talk around town. What's going to be the talk around town is that Mary and, and Joseph were betrothed. She got pregnant somehow. Joseph said it wasn't his, but he married her anyway. So either he's admitting that the second point was a lie, or he's conceding his reputation to somebody who violated his betrothed. There's no way that he gets out of this with a, with a clean reputation. But the angel says, don't be afraid of what people are going to say about you. This is something that God is doing. And you can have upright character. You can follow God, but it's going to cost you your reputation. You should do that. Who are we concerned to please with our life? Do we feel the burden of, the, of, of a cloud of people around us, strangers online? Do we care more about what they think about us than about what God thinks about us? Are, are we quiet in situations where we know we ought to have said something because we really don't want to make anybody unhappy with us? Who are we concerned to please with our life? When we pray, do we pray, hallowed be my name? May my name be revered? Would I have a good reputation? Or is the model of prayer that Jesus left for us, hallowed be your name, God? Your kingdom come. Your will, your desire in my life be done. And that can come across as uh, high and mighty. That can be like, oh, great, like I came to a church service and there's Christmas lights everywhere and now the, the preacher's telling me that I gotta, I gotta lay aside my reputation, I gotta follow Jesus, like I can't do that. It's just like a, a huge burden on me. Except all this took place in verse 22 to fulfill, to, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I'm going to do some language. Um, the, the Bible wasn't originally written in English. The, the first portion of it, the Hebrew scriptures, were written in Hebrew uh, and a little bit of Aramaic, but Hebrew primarily. And then the New Testament, the Christian scriptures, were written in Greek. So we've got some translation that's happening here. Uh, the name is Yeshua in Hebrew. Hebrew doesn't have a J. If we were going to translate, transliterate that, it would be Joshua. So Yeshua... Uh, and then you put that into Greek, it's Jesus. Jesus also doesn't have it, or Greek also doesn't have a J. They put an I instead of a Y. Um, and that's Jesus. So Joshua, Jesus, it means deliverer or savior. Great, we've got a king that's going to run in on a white horse. He's going to slice everybody's head off. He's going to save us. Like that's, that's our picture. We've got a savior. We've got a deliverer that's coming. But his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. It's not just a picture of kingship. It's a picture of intimacy. 
that as we, as we look at a tranquil scene, a silent night in the culture, there's a shadow of a cross in the background that God would lay his whole life down in order to facilitate intimacy with us. I'm not just here to save you, I'm here to walk with you. God shows us his generous character by making himself of no reputation. We read from Philippians chapter 2, which says that outright. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, being equal with God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held onto. Like, I don't have to prove how great and awesome I am. But he humbled himself, made himself of no reputation, humbled himself to the point of death, even the humiliating death of a common criminal on a cross. God shows his generous character by making himself of no reputation. And in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 24, we'll wrap this up. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So I'll just point out, like, this is, this is before ultrasounds and stuff like that. So the angel shows up and says, hey, you're going to have a boy. And the angel's got a 50-50 shot of being right on that one, right? And so if the baby's born and it's a boy, it's like, okay, well, maybe this angel knew what he's talking about. I should probably name him the name that the angel told me to name him. We actually don't know a lot about Joseph. We've got this story here. We've got another story that uh, he plays in that we're going to talk about next week. But by and large, the data that we have about Joseph is really, really small. Usually it looks like the picture that we get is like this. We saw a nativity scene uh, the other week. We were walking down uh, downtown, and we were walking through um, on a date. And Jesse looks over. She goes, oh, I've never seen that. And I look over, and like, it's a nativity scene. She's like, yeah, but look. It's a nativity scene. She's like, who's got the baby? Oh. She saw that in this nativity scene, Joseph was the one who was holding the child. She's like, I've never seen that before. Usually he's there, but he might as well be a shepherd. Like, he just comes in off the street. Like, he's, he's present, but he's not involved. And that's our picture of Joseph in this story. And yet, we see, like, this cost him a lot. He was a young guy. He was at the start of his life. He hasn't even gotten a, his head around how to be married, how to be a husband, how to be a provider for a family, and, or how to provide for his wife when he has to begin to be a parent to a child he knows is not his. What 20-year-old is, is, is equipped or ready to do that? We know almost nothing about him, but we know that he followed God through the valley of the shadow of death. We know that he followed God in dark places. We know that he did not clearly see how this was going to work out for his good or for the good of all humanity, and yet he chose to follow God anyway. He laid aside his reputation. He laid aside his needs and his dreams. He laid aside his, his rights. He knew her not until she had given birth. He married a girl and didn't sleep with her until after she had given birth. Young man had a right that he did not enact. This is not nothing. We can lay aside our reputation for intimacy with God. He says, God, I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> I really don't understand. This whole Holy Spirit thing, like, 
probably theologians are going to be debating that 2,000 years after this is going on. And guess what they are? How does that happen? How, how, do you take, how do you take the divine second person of the Trinity and put it into a human form? How do you take half of the chromosomes from Mary and then mix them with divine something or other? Like, what does the DNA look like? How does, how does the flesh work? Like, I don't, I, I don't understand. And he understood probably even less than we do. And yet he said, I don't get it. But I'm going to call him Savior. The world around him watches a young kid take a bride who everybody assumed had been unfaithful to him and names the son Savior. Is there a cognitive dissonance? Are are we out of this mode yet? Can we see the dirt? This week, what should we be laying aside in order to grow in our intimacy with God? God shows his generous character. God holds his reputation with open hands by making himself of no reputation. He's born to a blue-collar worker, construction worker, with no reputation. His family was ashamed to take him in to their house when they got to Bethlehem. Let him sleep with the sheep. Y'all, y'all deal with your own business. We don't want nothing on it. God shows his generous character by making himself of no reputation. So what should we lay aside this week? Not to make ourselves better before God, but to grow in our intimacy. Not to be present at the manger, but to be engaged with the Savior. Would you pray together with me? God, there are so many things that come to mind as we try to get into this story. Um, I'm tempted to say that it's in your grace that you've given us so few words to dissect here. When we think about the impact and the import and, and, and all of the things that are going on in these few verses, God, we really want some more detail. We want to read Joseph's journal. The Lord, in your kindness and your wisdom, this is the story that you've given us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would find you in it. God, whatever I've said this morning that's incorrect or anything that I've said that's just my own opinion, God, I pray that those things would be quickly forgotten, but that your word would stand true. And the story that you were telling throughout all of history would be burned in our hearts. That you came not just to rule over us, but to be God with us. That it was your plan from ages past is a demonstration of your character. We need you, God.
Would you fill us with your spirit that we might follow you in dark places or confusing areas? Would you help us to hold with open hands the gifts that you've given us, that you might use them for your own purposes, to bring all glory and honor to your name? Would your will be done in our hearts, in our lives, in our homes, in our city? It's in your name we pray. Amen. We'll take a few minutes and um, just spend some time in quiet prayer and reflect on how God's speaking this morning. If there's something you need to write down, then um, I usually need to take notes if I ever hope to remember anything. Um, But if you need to send a text to somebody or something like that, or you need to talk to somebody, it's a good time to do that. But let's take a few minutes um, and reflect on how God's speaking this morning, and we'll close together in singing.